diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Thomas Ford and Justin Clemens about their new book, Barren Field in New South Wales, The Poetics of Terra Nullius. Um, so welcome, Tom and Justin. Hi, Di. Yeah, hi, hi, Di. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So Justin's in the studio and Thomas is on the phone. So, Baron Field, it's a funny name, isn't it? Um, who was Baron Fields? He, he was a, a guy born in 1786, a, born into a kind of middle-class family, I guess, and was a second son, you know, had to, had to find a, a profession to um, make his living and went into the law. But he was also someone who was really involved uh, heavily in the literary culture of romanticism, uh, kind of London romanticism, of the uh, 18-teens associated with uh, very well-known poets like William Wordsworth and some who were important at the time but are maybe a little bit less known, like Lee Hunt. But our book isn't about his time in London. Uh, it's about what happened. Uh, I, I guess his kind of like first real big break was uh, at the age of about 30, he got a job as the judge of the Supreme Court of Civil Judicature in New South Wales, and so the, the colony, the penal colony, and that so it was, it was effectively the most senior judge, the most senior legal authority in the colony. And he came out here from 1817 to 1824, so a seven-year period. And I guess in that period, he did two really important things. Um, the first, poetically, uh, is that he published, wrote and published a book that was the first volume of poems to be published in this country, uh, so a book called First Fruits of Australian Poetry. Uh, so you can see how he's making that claim to a kind of really foundational claim to, to, to Australian poetry. And that's a, that, the title of that book is actually the first time the phrase Australian poetry uh, was ever used, um, it, it appears. Uh, so that so it's been important, uh, I guess, in uh, people for, for people writing about um, kind of colonial uh, literature and people writing about the history of poetry in Australia. Uh, but the other really key thing he did um, while he uh, was on the the legal side of things, and there he appears to be the first person to have uh, articulated what later became known as the doctrine of terra nullius as the, as the legal foundation, the kind of legal framework uh, within which the colonisation of Australia proceeded. 
So even though the colony had been, you know, had there had been uh, colonists there from 1788, the, the the kind of legal basis through which the British laid claim to the to, to the land had been left kind of unsettled, and it was really Field who spelled it out first, who, who introduced Terra Nullius to Australia, yeah. um, and that's a really significant thing. And I think there are people who have an idea that Captain Cook introduced the idea of Terra Nullius. So, you know, the fact that it didn't happen until, you know, 50 years after uh, Captain Cook had come to Australia is uh, something that's really important to be aware of. But what were the alternatives to Terra Nullius in terms of the colonisation of Australia? What were the other ways of potentially justifying the colonisation? They hadn't really clearly kind of addressed the question. I mean, as you mentioned, there was there was Cook, uh, the voyage of the Endeavour in 1770, and then when the first fleet came in 1788, uh, the, the, these questions were kind of left not just unresolved, but kind of unasked in a way. And I think uh, particularly in the early decades of colonisation, uh, from the point of view of the British authorities, it might have been convenient to leave the the kind of legal framework of the colony a, a little bit um, unspecified because it was in a lot of ways a really exceptional legal space. It was a colony of a kind of military autocracy that was essentially outside of the rule of law. So it was convenient not to have to uh, kind of spell out the legal principles through which uh, the colony was operating. But uh, the issue was by the time Field arrived in 1817, the, the colony was really starting to change quite rapidly. Um, it was experiencing uh, really, really significant demographic growth. There were both new influxes of uh, convicts being transported, but also for the first time significant numbers of free settlers arriving. And the economy of the colony was also diversifying, becoming um, kind of more liberal, uh, economically um, uh, active society. And at the same time, there was increasing agitation to establish some of the kind of rights that people expected, particularly free settlers, um, as British subjects. So the, so the, the, the colony had kind of reached a, a tipping point, a crisis point uh, that forced this issue um, around uh, the specifying what the legal framework was going to be uh, henceforward. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Um, and another way that um, it could have been justified was, as I recall from reading the book, that uh, that the colonisation could have been justified as a conquest. And Terra Nullius explicitly leaves out the concept that this was actually a conquest. Is yeah, that right? so the, well, the, 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 the crisis point came, and this, this, is a, this is a kind of strange peculiarity to the story. So the, the, the crisis point, the, the kind of um, occasion uh, for uh, Baron Field intervention was a question around um, powers of taxation uh, and essentially whether the governor had powers to impose tax in the colony or whether to or whether if uh, taxes were to be, you know, legally authorised, whether they had to have uh, the backing of an act of parliament. Um, so uh, Governor Macquarie, who was governor at the time, um, you know, he, he's, he's well-known in Australian history as a great builder. You know, you can still see his uh, you know, colonial edifices that uh, he was responsible for in Sydney, uh, and also a great builder of roads. Um, 
and uh, so he had a, a, a turnpike established, a, a road built between uh, connecting Sydney and Parramatta, and imposed a toll on that. So you had to pay, you know, uh, two pence if you're on a, uh, a horse, or you know, more if you're a, a carriage, and so on. If you were transporting cattle, you'd have to pay the toll. But the question was whether he actually had uh, the legal power to um, impose that toll, um, and so. Field's intervention kind of spelt out the legal alternatives, kind of boiled them down to, 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 to just a couple um, of possibilities. Uh, the first was if the colony had been acquired by the Crown uh, through conquest. So if, uh, you know, the King's soldiers had invaded and, um, uh, and, 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 and conquered the colony, then the colony was, in a way, a kind of King's private possession so that the basic legal principles that were in place in Britain weren't applicable in the colony. And if that was the case, then the king or the governor, as his vice-regal representative, would have powers kind of to act and decree at will. He could impose taxes. The The alternative, though, was that if the colony had been settled on the basis of being uninhabited, then the settlers brought with them the colony, their their legal kind of rights and entitlements as uh, subjects of the crown, and that included the principle of no tax, no taxation without representation. That if they were to be taxed, then there had to be some token of consent uh, through their representatives in parliament. It basically, you could only tax them if they had a uh, an act of parliament backing that tax, and 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 that was the alternative that Peel spelt out. And it was on that basis, it was it was really to kind of to create. New South Wales as a space in which uh, kind of liberal parliamentary principles of law applied that he said, well, this, this requires, this entails that we settle this country as if it were uninhabited. And that's the, that's the, the kind of big terra nullius legal fiction uh, that, that, that then becomes enshrined in the legal system uh, in Australia in all kinds of ways. Right. Now, tell me, the second... So the title of your book is Barrenfield in New South Wales, The Poetics of Terra Nullius. So how does this relate to poetry? Maybe I'll leave that to Justin. <laughs> well, that's a, that's, a, that's a very good question, Di. The, uh, uh, Tom's already sketched, I think, uh, the, the historical and the, 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 uh, some of the key historical and legal aspects of, the, of, the, of this very peculiar establishment of a, of a doctrine of uh, non-invasion which, first of all, has nothing to do with the indigenous inhabitants of this country. It's clear to Field himself, who's a, a recorder uh, of, of indigenous ceremonies and various other things, that there's no question that, a, a, uh, that, that the, the land that is thereafter called Australia is, in, in fact, inhabited, that he's in a penal colony, but the penal colony is changing under, under you know, uh, demographic, uh, demographic and economic pressures that, that Tom's just sketched. And there's, a, there's, a, there, there's an expansion underway. And, and for Field himself, who, was, as Tom has also said, was connected in the, in the, in the early, uh, 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 earlier in the 18, 1810s with uh, some, some very radical uh, and f- famous at the time, notorious even, uh, English poets, uh, uh, Baronfield also is a is a poet, or he wants to be a poet, or he at least wants to contribute to to this new kind of poetry, which is is romantic romantic poetry. 
So the the, the poetics of, of of Terra Nullius is 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 a phrase which brings together these two aspects of of, of Baron Field's project. One, his legal work. He's the as 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 we've said, is the he's the highest legal authority in the penal colony of New South Wales under under Governor Macquarie, and so he is a, he has to be he has to be consulted on all matters of law. He's overhearing cases uh, with, to do with convicts and also emancipists, free settlers, and so forth. Uh, at the time, but also he publishes in 1819 this book, First Fruits of Australian Poetry, the first book of poetry ever published in this in this country. Uh, Tom has already said it's the first time the phrase Australian poetry is used. That's very important. We can't forget at the time that there is no Australia. Terra Australis is an old uh, uh, Latin term, and in fact the, the name, uh, the, the, the landmass is known as New Holland still, uh, for the most part. It's only after, um, it's only in the 18-teens themselves that uh, Flinders' uh, diary, uh, uh, journals are published in which he suggests the name Australia for the landmass. Uh, Macquarie is thinking about this, and also uh, Field is thinking about this, and thinking about, well, Australia, the uh, I guess an anglified version of this ancient Latin term will be a vision that I will project for the whole of... He's already thinking of colonisation. And so Terra Nullius will be a new legal basis very, very late, as we've already discussed, much surprisingly late as a, as a kind of self-conscious uh, legal matter. And at the same time, uh, uh, Australia will need its, its, its first poet. And Barrenfield seeks to be the guy who does who imposes this new legal fiat, I suppose, but also simultaneously a new kind of uh, a literary language or a little, uh, or a kind of, uh, uh, on the continent itself. And so first fruits is a, is a also, it, it seems self, self-evidently a phrase saying, this is the first fruits of Australian poetry, Right, there was, of course, poetry written in English in the in the colony before by convicts and 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 others. Um, but this is the the self conscious seizure and ambitious declaration that this will be the first from now on. Everything, forget everything that went before, forget the convicts, forget the penal colony, forget the the horrors of in, uh, of what of what is de facto an invasion, uh, invasion, and will evade those and and have this new this new liberal. Uh, romantic uh, European English English imposition on on the landmass and on the on the language as well, and just uh, uh, as a kind of sidebar, the the phrase first fruits doesn't just mean hey this is the first thing. It, it, it's also a, a, ta- a term from the history of, of European taxation as well. That, um, that so it's a, it's already uh, the the first first fruits of Australian poetry are kind of a it's a tax it's a tax statement by uh, by by. Uh, by field, and uh, those things together, we have to say that Terra Nullius is also a kind of poesis. It's a form of create creative invention. In this case, a deleterious and disastrous one. But we can't we can't uh, separate absolutely the the powers of lawmaking from the powers of, of of poetry as well. Okay, I'm talking to Thomas Ford and Justin Clemens about their new book, Baron Field. In New South Wales, the poetics of Terra Nullius. Um, now, tell me, what are the things that no one else has said before in your new book, Tom? Well, I guess you know pe- people have written about Field um, before. He's he's, he's uh, a kind of uh, well, not not a celebrated, but a significant figure in literary history. So people have written about his um, poetry um, um, quite extensively now. 
Uh, and people have also written um, about uh, his his role in the, uh, I guess, the establishment of Terra Nullius, uh in this country. Uh, but what hasn't been done um, before us, I think, is an attempt to put the law and the poetry together. So it's really that 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 phrase, the poetics of Terra Nullius, I guess, is the is 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 the kind of um, key. Uh, I don't want to say innovation, but you know that's that, that, that's the new argument we're making. And, and maybe I'll just say just a little bit about that to follow up on what uh, Justin just said too. Um, so one one of the things about the uh, the kind of legal writing that um, Barrenfield does, where he spells out this doctrine, uh, is that he constructs a kind of web of um, authorities and citations and precedents uh, that. It, 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 it's quite it's quite cunning. He, he, he kind of makes the argument without ever saying explicitly that the basis for colonisation is that Australia is uninhabited. He, 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 he makes that conclusion unmistakable without through the kind of uh, authorities and references and allusions that he, he brings together without saying it explicitly, without saying it directly. He leaves it to others to spell out. And I guess um, one one thing that we we, we say is that uh, that's a kind of poetic that that's, that's a kind of poetics of law he's using there. We often think of you know poetry says things without saying it, or it says things indirectly, it says things figuratively. He's using those kind he's using those poetic techniques, those kind of um, conventionally poetic ways of speaking, to, to to introduce this new idea into the law of the country. And he writes poems in the same kind of way. Uh, as he makes his legal argument by 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 bringing lots of allusions and and references and and citations together, it's a it's a kind of very very um, patchwork kind of poetry that that pieced together out of uh, the archive of uh, English literature. Um, and I guess the, the the other thing to say about the poetics of Terranalius is it's a it's a legal principle, but it's always more than a legal principle. Uh, and I think for Field, he sees that it needs. Uh, that the, the law needs a kind of poetic supplement. Uh, that the, that the claim to possession of the territory is legal, but it has to be more than legal. It has to be an imaginative claim of possession as well. And he sees that as being, um, I guess, the task of his poetry. And, and maybe I'll just say one one final thing about uh, Field's poetry, uh, just quickly, is that um, as I said, uh, you know, many scholars. Um, Literary historians uh, have written about um, Fields' poetry, and most of them uh, think it's not very good poetry. And I think most readers, uh, most casual readers who, who ever happen across a, a field poem, would probably agree. Um, and we don't disagree, uh, but we do think there's a there's a strange way in which I guess this poet this poetry's badness. Um, actually doesn't kind of disempower it. It doesn't prevent it from having effects. In a strange way, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like clunky, um, awkward nature is actually how it exerts its powers um, in the culture and, and in this kind of like extra-legal realm as well. It's almost, it's almost as if, uh, you know, his poetry has a kind of like public purpose and a, public, a series of public effects of, of political and cultural effects um, that, that, that it can achieve precisely because it's not great poetry. Wow, well, that's a, an incredible achievement for not very good poetry. Okay, now I'm aware you have to sort of get moving onto your next appointment. So thank you for being a part of the conversation, Tom. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it to Justin to, to answer all the, the final really difficult questions. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk a bit more about the, the, the poetry. So, yeah, okay. thank, thank you very much. Yeah, see, but thanks, Di. See, see you, Tom. Yeah, see you, Tom. <laughs> see you, Tom. Um, so, Justin, when we look at um, uh, the poetry, uh, what do you feel? Is it good or bad poetry? <laughs> or what, what is its special power? How come we're still reading it? Well, well, we're really uh, – it's a very good question, Di. And as, as Tom Tom has, has, has said, is that uh, in the history of Australian uh, l- uh, literature, yeah, the thing is, is that – Barrenfield very self-consciously wrote himself into 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 that history, and so you can't talk about the history of like a settler Australian poetry without talking about him. Even though his poetry has never, even by his friends, uh, uh, they they didn't think it was very good at the time, and very few people have found it uh, very enlivening since. But even if it's not very good poetry not only because of its historical importance, but because also uh, one of the things we do in the book is read the poetry very, very closely to, to, to show how all of the, the stuff we've been discussing about terra nullius, of, of dispossession, of colonial, uh, of colonial imposition and, 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 and genocide and so forth, are actually articulated by field in, in and by the poetry itself in a very uh, often very uh, uh, complex and... Uh, well, deliberately obfuscatory way. Um, uh, perhaps the best way to, to, to give you a sense of this, the first book of Australian poetry, First Fruits of Australian Poetry from 1819, it's only got two poems in it. Because there's two, it makes it a book. It's like a rather, a, I guess we'd call it a feuilleton or, a, or, or, or something else a these days. Book, it's or? a chapbook, really, but it's still a book. And the second, the two poems in the first edition, 1819, there was another one in 1823, and then a, another one in 1825, where more poems were added in, in 1823. But the first one has two poems, one about Botany Bay flowers, the, the flora of Botany Bay, and then the other one is the kangaroo, of course, one of the most, you know, the animal of Australia for, for Europeans. And so I'd like to read some of the kangaroo, and so you could get a sense of just how good or bad. Well, let's go with reading all of kangaroo and see how we go. All right, let's do it. This is this is is just hold on to your hats, everybody. This is the kangaroo. It has a, it has a, a, a little epigraph in, in Latin from uh, Virgil's Aeneid, mixtumque genus prolesque biformis, you know, mixed, basically mixed of mixed kind. Kangaroo, kangaroo, they are spirit of Australia that redeems from utter failure, from perfect desolation and warrants the creation of this fifth part of the earth, which should seem an afterbirth not conceived in the beginning, for God blessed his work at first and saw that it was good, but emerged at the first sinning when the ground was therefore cursed and hence this barren wood. Kangaroo, kangaroo, though at first sight we should say in thy nature that there may contradiction be involved, yet, like discord well resolved, it is quickly harmonised, sphinx or mermaid realised, or centre unfabulous would scarce be more prodigious, or Pegasus poetical, or hippogriff, chimeras all. But what nature would compile, nature knows to reconcile, and wisdom ever at her side, of all her children's justified. She had made the squirrel fragile, she had made the bounding heart, but a third so strong and agile was beyond in nature's art, so she joined the former two, in thee, kangaroo. To describe thee, it is hard, Converse of the camelopard, which beginneth camel-wise, but endeth of the panther size. Thy forehalf, it would appear, had belonged to some small deer, such as liveth in a tree. 
by thy hinder, thou shouldst be a large animal of chase, bounding o'er the forest space, joined by some divine mistake, none but nature's hand can make. Nature in her wisdom's play, on creation's holiday. For howsoever anomalous, thou yet art not incongruous, repugnant or preposterous, better proportioned animal, more graceful or ethereal, was never followed by the hound with fifty steps to thy one bound. Thou canst not be amended. No, be as thou art. Thou best art so. When sooty swans are once more were rare, and duck moles the museum's care, be still the glory of this land, happiest work of finest hand. Yes, so that's very much a European perspective on kangaroo as a kind of a, a cobbled together creature of different parts, you know, squirrel in front and a deer at the back, whereas we just see it's a kangaroo. Abs- yeah. Absolutely, that's a very yeah. important aspect of the poem. It's a, quite self-consciously a kind of, uh, as, 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 as was, as was uh, mentioned earlier, like it's, a, it's an attempt to write back and transmit to colonial Britain uh, uh, this, this uh, European's eye view or Englishman's view in, in, in this very particular case of using classical allusions from the history of, uh, of, of Greek and, and Roman mythology uh, to, to, to try and explain how paradoxical this animal seems to, to European eyes. And in fact, in that very last stanza, also some other uh, Australian anomalies are mentioned. The, the black swan, from which is a, a, a trope which comes from the, the, the Latin satirist uh, uh, juvenile, and also the, the duck mole, which is, of course, uh, uh, the, the, the placipus. And, uh, but it is, it is the kangaroo that for field becomes, and we think this is probably the first time this phrase is ever used, a spirit of Australia right. uh, as well. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, which he rhymes with failure, which isn't very nice. <laughs> it is an incredible, it is an incredible rhyme, we have to, we have to agree. Yeah. And, and what was the significance of the kangaroo poem? Short in in brief. Well, look, look. It, it seems like a, a, as as one one uh, commentator uh, uh, from Australian literary history said, "Oh, it's an exuberant oddity. This poem. It's obviously the kangaroo is something that's particularly and emblematically Australian. It becomes uh, so very very quickly uh, from from." Uh, from the, the the late eighteenth century, uh, kangaroos are famous, even if they're depicted in very odd ways uh, by uh, you know in paintings and in, in other poetry uh, before then. But for for if you think about the first two poems I've just mentioned in the first volume of Australian poetry, Botany Bay flowers and the kangaroo. That's flora and fauna. It's a it's a the the, the book is itself as as Tom said before. It's the it's the the poetic supplement to, to legal authority, an imaginative capture and seizure of, of the of the of the of the animals, of the life of the life of the land itself. That would be one thing that would be important to underline. The other thing is, and and uh, is and and is to say that you know the the, the kind of jaunty verse and the the, the kind of you know maybe wit, but also the the the, the kind of you know the, the the movement of the poem, uh, I guess, sort of culminates in that final stanza. It's a it's a it's a fable of extinction. You know, when black swans are gone, when duck moles are gone, they'll still be the kangaroo. There's a kind of there's a kind of, there's a kind of uh, 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 you know. 
terrifyingly, there's kind of a, a genocidal aspect to this poem too, which is is really an assertion, I think, of 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 of, of the English takeover of of, of the of the landmass that becomes Australia. So we're going to be the new masters here. So it's a, a quite self-conscious uh, declaration, I think, of, yeah, And of um, but perhaps the, the intention of creating a terra nullius in the future. That's right. Well, the, 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 as, 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 as Tom said before, the way in which Baron Field gives his legal judgments uh, themselves uh, what we might think of just a, a naturally is more characteristic of poetry than of, a, of an actual clear and defined legal judgment. There's no, uh, he, he presents things in very uh, complex and undecided ways, but if you follow through the logic, you can see that, this, that these poems and his, and as well as his legal judgments, are, uh, that he's very, very far-sighted. He's capable of, of, of very, very far-sighted planning, and he really does have a, a, a kind of, uh, consciousness of himself as attempting to impose, uh, um, I guess, British uh, a British subjectivity upon upon Australia its, uh, uh, itself, but through through the through the the means not only of law but of poetry simultaneously. Hence, the poetics of, of Terra Nullius. Thank you, Justin. And I've been talking to Justin Clemens and Thomas Ford about their new book, Baron Field in New South Wales, and. Thomas Ford is a senior lecturer in English at La Trobe University and Justin Clemens is associate professor in the School of Culture and Communications at the University of Melbourne. And thank you for coming in. Thanks for having us, Di. It's been great speaking to you. Great. Thank you. And uh, my name is Di Cousins and you've been listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Programme. 